If temperatures continue to rise, we will step through a series of one-way doors and the end destination of which is climate catastrophe. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, we preview COP26, the climate summit, where governments must show how they will ensure global warming goes no higher than 2 degrees Celsius and ideally less than 1.5. In Glasgow, the world must deliver an outcome which keeps 1.5 degrees in reach. Alok Sharma, the person who will chair the meeting and will talk to a couple of summit veterans about what being at a COP is like. Just enormous jamborees of meetings of government delegates, businesses, environmental activists, journalists, all sorts of people. As long as you don't mind being bewildered for two weeks at a time, they're pretty okay. We'll strive to make you less bewildered about the COP, and we'll hear from someone who's been to all of them. Greenpeace head Jennifer Morgan, who tells us how perceptions of climate change have changed over the last three decades. What was seen as this faraway problem is now here and now. It is me, it is my kids, that panic that anxiety is much more tangible than it was and you can't ignore it you just you just can't ignore it anymore to help me look at the key issues of cop26 i'm joined by the global editor-in-chief of wired gideon litchfield that silicon valley conviction that by just applying enough brains and enough money and enough tech we can solve this thing that in itself is not the thing that will change the world subscribe to radio davos wherever you get your podcast leave us a rating or review and join us on the world economic forum podcast club on facebook join me robin pomeroy and gideon litchfield of wired as we preview cop 26. cop 26 is not a photo op nor a talking shop it must be the forum where you put the world on track to deliver on climate this is radio davos On this week's Radio Davos, we're looking ahead to COP26, which starts in a few days' time. And I'm joined by Gideon Litchfield, who's the global editor-in-chief of Wired. Gideon, how are you? Hello. How's it going, Robin? Not bad, thank you. Where do we find you? Are you in California? I am in San Francisco right now, yes. Is climate change a big issue for the kind of people who read or who consume Wired, do you think? Yes, climate is a huge issue for the people who read Wired and for the people who write for Wired. Uh, we are covering it as one of the main challenges that the world faces. I think of Wired as being a publication about how we solve the world's biggest problems, and climate is obviously one of them. And that's exactly what we try to do here on Radio Davos, look at the world's biggest challenges and how we might solve them. And climate change might be the biggest and hardest challenge that humanity faces. I'm assuming most people listen to this know what climate change is, but I've realised recently that quite a few people might not know what a COP is or why it's called a COP. So with that in mind, my colleague Julie Masiga and I have recorded this audio explainer that answers some of those questions in a two-minute nutshell. Julie, what is a COP? COP stands for Conference of the Parties, a meeting of all the signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the treaty that was agreed at the so-called Earth Summit held in Rio de Janeiro in June 1992, under which governments agreed to tackle global warming. That UN treaty was signed in 1992, so why do we keep having these COPs? That treaty did not set out the details. That work was left open for discussion at the annual conferences of the parties. The first of those, COP1, took place in Berlin in 1995. So what happens at a COP? Governments negotiate what action each of them must take to fight climate change. Some COPs have resulted in landmark agreements that have advanced climate action. Although sometimes progress is a matter of two steps forward and one step back. For example? At COP3, held in Kyoto, Japan, governments agreed the first ever binding greenhouse gas emissions targets. But the deal frayed at subsequent COPs, and the United States, the world's biggest polluter at the time, pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. 
The last landmark COP was COP21 in Paris in 2015, which produced the Paris Agreement, where countries said they would keep global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius, that's 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels, and preferably no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Okay, Paris was a landmark, but why is Glasgow so important? The Paris deal requires countries to increase the ambition of their greenhouse gas emissions plans every five years. As COP26 was delayed by a year due to the COVID-19 pandemic, that deadline has stretched to six years. Current pledges, even if matched by action, would not reach the Paris targets. So the big question for the COP is, are we getting closer to reigning in climate change or is it out of our grasp? Well, that's the theory of what a COP is, but what does it feel like to be at one? Here's veteran Reuters climate change correspondent Alistair Doyle. As long as you don't mind being bewildered for two weeks at a time, they're pretty okay. Um, But I've been to 13 so far. I counted them up just before today and Glasgow will be the 14th. They are just enormous places, jamborees of meetings of government delegates, businesses, environmental activists, um, journalists, all sorts of people. They swap around the world from one place to the other. This year is Glasgow, last year was Madrid, it was meant to be Chile. They are confusing places and they tend to end with less perhaps than people have hoped for, I suppose, at the beginning, generally. But still, it's a, it's a ship that's been sailing since the early 90s and it has come up with some agreements. After all, the Paris Agreement was a, was a massive breakthrough. The former Reuters climate correspondent Alistair Doyle. We'll be hearing more from him on a forthcoming episode of Radio Davos where he talks about his book, The Great Melt, Accounts from the Frontline of Climate Change. Gideon, in the second half of this episode, we'll be hearing from someone who's been to even more cops than that, someone who's been to all of them, environmental campaigner Jennifer Morgan. But before that, let's talk about this one, COP26. Let's get into the big issues that are going to be coming up there. Let's hear from someone who'll be playing a key role at COP26 in Glasgow, the chief negotiator for the United States, climate envoy and former Secretary of State, John Kerry. The key is to accelerate everything. We are behind. We're dangerously behind. In order to achieve net zero by 2050, we have to reduce by about 50 percent between 2020 and 2030. So the race is on now to get that reduction. And to do that, I am told by the experts, 50% of the reductions we need to get will come from technologies that are not yet at scale. 50% we're relying on technology that isn't there, or if it is there, isn't there big enough yet. Do you put faith in technology to save us from climate change, Gideon? I do and I don't. In other words, I think that technology has a huge part to play. And it's in everything from coming up with uh, new ways to generate clean energy to smart grids that use that energy more effectively to finding ways to decarbonize very carbon heavy industries like steel to uh, crops that use less water. I mean, the massive raft of technologies that are either or already existing or in development or that could be developed in the future. Uh, and at the same time, the tech in itself obviously isn't enough. It requires the political will. It requires the policies and it requires the financing uh, and the finance, I think, in particular in poorer countries, which is obviously one of the goals of COP26 is to bring more financing to poorer countries so that they can uh, create incentives for decarbonizing their own economies and create opportunities for businesses and entrepreneurs there who want to come up with local solutions. 
what excites you about technology? Technology is a fun, exciting thing. And if you look at Wired, there's all the gadgets and all the great stuff that's coming out. So we can get excited about the next iPhone or whatever. But but are there some of those things you mentioned, which are sometimes a bit kind of grand scale in, industrial decarbonizing steel manufacturing, this kind of thing. When you come across news stories like that, are there any that just that do really grab you? And or or is it more a case of it, it's 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 worthy and earnest, but it's quite difficult to get readers interested in that kind of thing? No, there's a lot of stuff that is fun and exciting. And we cover quite a lot of those sorts of stories at Wired because I think one of the things we do is give people stories of ideas that are inspiring or exciting. Uh, and so if I look at the stuff that we've done recently, you know, a couple of things spring to mind. We had a, a story about using solar panels to cover crops. And the idea here is that if you're a farmer, and particularly if you're in a very hot climate, you could use solar panels to provide some partial shade to your crops so they're not being beaten down by the sun. They use less water. In some cases, they, they grow better. And at the same time, you're getting double use out of your land because that same surface area is now covered with solar, solar panels that you can use to generate electricity for your farm and even sell to the grid. That's a really sort of simple almost idea. It's a fun one. It's an interesting one. It's already using an existing technology. Uh, then there are things like using remote sensing from space to monitor biodiversity or land use or water use. Um, there are high-tech things, there are low-tech things like putting reflective coatings on walls of buildings and on road surfaces to reflect more heat back and to reduce the temperature of a city. Um, there are things like greening cities. So there's, there's an enormous amount of stuff, some of which is, is fun, some of which is exciting. Um, and I think the, the problem maybe with all of this is actually encapsulated in a piece that we, we ran couple of months ago by one of our columnists, Paul Ford. And he, he is a software developer who's now gotten really interested in climate change. And he is recalling the days of the dot-com boom as this amazing time of possibility when people were trying lots and lots of different things. And there were countless startups and there was so many avenues that people were exploring and then it all collapsed. And he's worried a little bit that there might be even some kind of dot-com, the equivalent of the dot-com boom in climate tech. There is a huge amount of venture capital financing now flowing to climate tech. There are thousands of startups, thousands of ideas, uh, but do all of them, do any of them add up to the kinds of massive scale solutions that we need? Or are they really just an opportunity for lots of people to do some fun things for a while that don't pan out? I think that's the crucial question. That's fascinating. Now you're in Silicon Valley. Right now I am, yes. This is a place where ideas get, come and go. They're tested. Failing is not seen as a bad thing. We always hear that because you can try out crazy new ideas, some of which will become the next Facebook or whatever. Is there a feeling there that the, 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 the tech nerds of Silicon Valley are really getting into climate change or, or is it something that's yet to happen? Oh, very much so. Um, there was some news a couple of months ago about Chris Sacker, who was one of the, the legends of Silicon Valley investing, launching climate tech funds worth about $800 million. Um, you have climate pledges from various other uh, leading tech 
entrepreneurs and investors. So it definitely feels like something that people are very much getting into. And there is once again that Silicon Valley conviction that by just applying enough brains and enough money and enough tech, we can solve this thing. And I think there's, you know, there's room for that kind of determination and that drive and that interest in trying to find solutions. And at the same time, you know, as we've already said, there is that, that in itself is not, is not the thing that will change the world. We, we need the, the policies. We need the global agreements. Uh, we need the financing at a large scale, uh, so that it, it's not just a whole bunch of, uh, honestly, tech solutionists trying to find the next thing that will make them a bunch of money. Uh, but, but may not have a large scale impact. And as John Kerry said in that soundbite we heard, we need a 50% worldwide reduction in greenhouse gas emissions this decade. Now, obviously, some of those technical solutions will be helping that, but there's no, there's no two ways about it. Those reductions have to happen. Then let me play you another clip. This is Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace, and we'll be hearing more from her towards the end of this episode, talking about how she's the only person I know who's been to every single cop. So this was her 26th out of 26. This is what she had to say about technology and policy. Governments need to stop exploring for new fossil fuels and invest the funds and the subsidies that go to fossil fuels into clean and renewable energy. We have all of the policy solutions we need. That's not the issue anymore. We have the technology to move things quickly. But what is lacking is the courage to stand up to those interests that want to keep things going the same. Jennifer Morgan of Greenpeace saying technologies are there to tackle climate change, but the policies or the political will isn't. Does that, does that chime with you, Gideon? Yes, I think this is what we're going to see at COP26. It's going to be crucial is whether governments from some of the bigger countries re-up their climate pledges, in particular some of the ones that are opposing the, the reduction in the use of coal or, or slow walking the reduction in the use of coal. You know, if, 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 if countries don't try to eliminate coal from their energy production, then obviously that is a huge problem for tackling climate change. There are some encouraging things like the agreement that was reached by the US and Europe to bring down methane emissions by 30% by 2030. That is a policy that creates an opportunity for technologists because there is a lot that can be done in terms of reducing methane, particularly from livestock, uh, whether it's tweaking their diet so that they produce less methane or even putting, fitting masks on them that can help convert methane into carbon dioxide instead. Um, methane, obviously, as we know, is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So though, you know, policies like that, when they're adopted, can create that possibility for the technology to then go and, and do its work. But you need those policies first. So one of the policies, one of the big policies could be a carbon tax or carbon taxes or in some way pricing carbon emissions. And I put that to... Fatih Birol, who's the head of the International Energy Agency, featured in last week's episode of Radio Davos. And you may have heard him say this. In theory, it is the best way to address the problem. Putting a, a price on a carbon economic theory tells us that this would be the best and easiest solution. However, when it comes to the real life, I have difficulties to believe that we 
can implement the carbon pricing schemes in many parts of the emerging world and it may not be possible in the real world context. So therefore, I wouldn't put all the bets on the carbon pricing. Carbon pricing, yes, very good idea, but in some cases, especially the emerging countries, difficult to implement today. Therefore, we need to look at other options ranging from government regulation to the incentivizing renewables, hydropower and other low carbon technologies. Fatih Birol, head of the International Energy Agency. So he's saying the economists all say, yeah, pricing carbon, making people pay to emit carbon is a great idea. But unfortunately, the real world gets in the way. That's probably the case for climate policies over the decades, that there are ideas and policies there, but but they, the real world gets in the way. Uh, do you have any opinions about about climate pricing? I think everyone agrees that carbon pricing, carbon taxes could be a hugely effective tool uh, if only countries could agree to implement it. Uh, and indeed, at COP26, Article 6 of the Paris Accord is going to be one of the things that they are trying to finalize the rule book, basically, for carbon markets. Uh, but that is the that is the thing that has gotten held up the most at previous COP meetings. Uh, and it is a really difficult thing for countries to agree on. Uh, the US in particular seems to have generally lost interest in a carbon tax. It, it's fallen off the priority list for President Joe Biden. Um, there's not a lot of optimism that it's going to pass here, especially in the political climate that, that there now is. So, uh, that I think is a real, is a real problem. Um, if countries can't agree on this mechanism to try to create market incentives for people to, for, for, for emissions to be reduced, then uh, they're left with um, other policies, but ones that may not be uh, or may not be as effective. So we're about to go into COP26. Will there be things you'll be looking out for to kind of judge whether it was worth holding this massive conference in Glasgow and whether the world has made a step of progress? I think I'll be looking at the same things that everybody who follows this is looking at. We'll be looking at whether or not there is any progress on that Article 6 rulebook about carbon markets. In other words, whether there's any sign that countries are getting closer to agreeing on how, how to run those internationally, um, whether or not there's any progress on the pledge to phase out coal, and whether there's any increase in the financing for poor countries. Um, COP was supposed to reach a hundred billion dollars a year in financing for poorer countries from, from richer ones. It's a bit short of that at the moment. So, an increase in, in that kind of money would also represent some sort of commitment of, to taking climate change a bit more seriously. Um, it always seems to be incremental at these summits, uh, but I think people are looking for at least signs of movement on, on those kinds of things. Right. And we're looking for, this was meant to be the five years on, wasn't it, from, from Paris, but delayed by a year. And this should have been a big step up in terms of the commitments. Um, I guess we'll see see what comes of that. I imagine all our listeners have heard of Wired, but if they want to come and find your content, uh, where should they be looking? Well, they should look on wired.com. And one of the things that is happening over the next few weeks is we are bringing Wired UK and Wired US together into a single publication with everything published on wired.com. So we're growing our team and that includes expanding our climate coverage. Uh, so we're 
going, becoming a bigger and more global Wired, and that will be all on Wired.com. Thanks very much for helping me look ahead to COP26, the global editor-in-chief of Wired, Gideon Litchfield. Thanks very much. Thank you, Robin. Now to Jennifer Morgan. The head of Greenpeace has been campaigning for decades for action on climate change. As we chatted recently, I reminded her that we had met when I was a reporter at a COP 20 COPs ago. Executive Director of Greenpeace International. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Hey there. Great to be here with you. Now, you may not remember, but I remember meeting you for the first time at COP 6, November 2000. COP 6. We're now at COP 26. What's happened over 20, 21 years. And if I could nudge you, if there's any kind of light at the end of the tunnel, has anything improved? My first cop was cop one. So I, for better or for worse, have been to all of them. And I think what's happened is that the efforts by those who don't want the world to deal with climate change, the oil companies, the fossil fuel companies, the large industrial agriculture corporations have managed to sow doubt, block progress, fund elections, and make it very difficult for the world to move forward in addressing this climate chaos. And so that has created a situation where the emission reductions that should have happened haven't. And the edge of what the scientists told us could happen is at the worst. The recent IPCC report is just stunning and scary, obviously, at the level and the intensity of things that are already happening around the world. That's part of the story. You know, what has happened is certainly you have, from a technological perspective, vast progress in renewable energy, looking across the board, wind and solar taking off, economically viable, a lot of efforts to shut down coal around the world, not fast enough, not in enough places yet, but that is moving. But I think that what really hasn't changed is the combination of opposition and greenwash from the elites and corporate around the world that has now created climate anxiety amongst our youth. You mentioned the IPCC report. Are the warnings any more stark now? I mean, they were stark in the early 90s, weren't they? The warnings have always been stark. And if one had listened to the scientists back in the 1960s, when Lyndon B. Johnson got the first science report on his desk, we would be in a different situation. What has changed is the impacts themselves are happening. And we are seeing them ravaging people's homes all around the world. And I think what developed countries have experienced recently in the US, in Germany, is what developing countries have felt for some time. You just see this immense storms that come down, wipe away homes. You see forests going up in flames around the world. You know, you see people in subways in China and in New York. So what was seen this far away problem is now here and now. It is me. It is my kids. And I think that that panic, that anxiety is much more tangible uh, than it was. And you can't ignore it. You just you just can't ignore it anymore. So 20 years ago, when I was a youngish reporter for Reuters in The Hague at COP6, it was the tail end of the Clinton administration. It seems like ancient history now. And when the Kyoto Protocol should have been all tied up, but those talks effectively collapsed. A new US administration came in, pulled America out of the Kyoto Protocol. Now everyone talks about the Paris Agreement, which 
is, is today's what Kyoto was maybe 20 years ago. Do you have any confidence that countries will deliver on Paris in the way they didn't on Kyoto? First of all, what you're noting is an incredibly important thing. The United States has not been a stable ally on tackling the climate crisis ever. <laughs> and therefore, it is essential. It is vital. It is absolutely needed that the Biden administration and the U.S. Congress deliver something that has legal character that can build confidence around the world that the U.S. will act and reduce its emissions at the scale that's required. What's good about the Paris Agreement is you do have this long-term goal that countries have signed up to and you have a ratchet mechanism built in for every country to increase its ambition and what the coming COP is about is will they do it? Will they do it at scale? But the other thing I think is just people. I think there is so much support now. There is so much urgency all around the world from youth to grandparents to act. And I, I guess I just have to continue to think that those leaders are going to listen to that in a much more direct way than they have in the past. And the geopolitical situation has changed over those years, not just the American election swinging one way or the other, but the rise of China economically. 20 years ago, China was not the world's biggest emitter, and it was not required under Kyoto to make emissions cuts. Now it is the biggest. How important is China and how do you assess what China is doing? Well, clearly what China does is very important. I think that over the years, China had made good progress in building up clean energy and renewable energy and moving forward. I think what we've seen in the past is a bit of a stall in its industrial process and then a continuation of the use of, of coal as a dominant energy source. I think what, what I would say is the words of Xi Jinping have indicated he does see this in their self-interest, which it is certainly he has put forward and spoken recently with President uh, Biden about it. But China, like every other country, has to step up. It needs to peak its emissions earlier, by you know, 2025 at the latest. So let's look at COP26 then. What would be ideal outcome for you? What would be the worst outcome and kind of what do you actually expect? It's important to remember that COPs don't magically solve the problem. And this COP is, uh, though, uh, an incredibly important moment for heads of state uh, and others to come forward and make it clear that it's going in the right direction. First of all, every country, particularly the, the G20 countries, need to come forward with more ambition on their nationally determined contributions, as they're known, so their targets that add up to something that gets us to keep 1.5 degrees in sight. Currently, it's at 2.7. We need a lot more there. And there's a set of countries that haven't come forward with anything yet. Russia, Saudi Arabia, India, China needs to come forward, and the developed countries as well. So that's obviously a very key part. The other part that I think is also equally fundamental is you can call it a solidarity pact. And we see it now even more with COVID, the inequalities around the world and how that creates these gaps between rich and poor. The vaccine equity problem needs to be sorted uh, so that poor countries around the world can vaccinate their people. Climate finance is certainly a piece of that as well. Countries are not meeting the 100 billion a year goal recently. OECD has found that, but they need to go beyond that and also be looking at what they're going to do for the countries that are already suffering loss and damage. 
And then the third thing I think, which sometimes may not get as much attention, is that we have to wipe out the opportunity for greenwashing from large corporations, from any corporations. There is a plethora of net zero pledges being made by companies around the world. And many of them, particularly those from from the fossil fuel industry, are, are pure greenwash. They're depending on offsets that would allow them to plant trees and continue business as usual. And so Glasgow needs to both surface those and put in an accountability mechanism to get those to be much more in line with the science and needs to get the right rules in this Article 6, as it's called, in the negotiations, which would basically say, no, countries cannot, nor their companies, go off and offset their emissions anymore. They have to reduce them. Those are key metrics for for us going into the COP. What are the big changes that need to happen in this decade? If we move this conversation away from the negotiating room into the real world, 7% cuts in emissions every year. It's not happening. We're nowhere near it. But if we set aside the commitments and the political promises, what actually would work, do you think? I think you can look at it both from a broader economic perspective, right, which what would work is is actually shifting the entire dynamic so that the short-term interests of a few don't take over the the long-term interests of people or planet. That can mean things like, for example, for people on the ground in developing countries, that they don't have to deforest their lands in order to export it to Europe or the United States. They can actually have local models that would then bring benefits to people on the ground rather than those kind of extractivism efforts, or that we're not looking at extracting fossil fuels out of the ground, which have great harm to local communities there, but we are building up as is possible, distributed renewable energy at scale in um, developing countries, certainly to bring multiple benefits, uh, but also in developed countries where we know we can move those things. It means a different mindset. It means really putting the climate emergency at the top table with also the social issues. So another main thing that needs to happen is for policies to go hand in hand that reduce the emissions, but also protect the most vulnerable and the poorest at the same time. That's totally possible. It means that the companies need to pay for these transitions, not taxpayers. It means governments need to stop exploring for new fossil fuels and invest the funds and the subsidies that go to fossil fuels into clean and renewable energy. We have all of the policy solutions we need. That's not the issue anymore. We have the technology to move things quickly. But what is lacking is the courage to stand up to those interests that want to keep things going the same. And I think, you know, those leaders in the next years have to just focus in on what's at stake and put all this other stuff aside because... It's a moment in the future of the earth, I would say, that is standing in front of them. And that requires courage, that requires ingenuity, and it requires absolute determination and focus. The trouble is those other things always do get in the way, don't they? You know, in democracies or autocracies, there's always other considerations. And part of the problem, I guess, is is the time horizon of these things. Interesting what you were saying, that the difference now and 20 years ago is that we can see climate change happening right now, whereas 20 years ago, it was much more theoretical. The science was pretty clear, but it was theoretical. The science is still very clear, but now it's actually happening. But still, it's still a long-term problem 
and politicians always deal with short-term problems and short-term solutions. How do we ever square that circle? I think what could happen is a leader saying, not accepting any more fossil fuel money, shutting down corruption, making it transparent how things work. These types of root causes, I think, is one part of it so that you can make the space for the, the solutions that are there. Another thing a leader could say is, we need to put in place a binding law that all corporations you know, of some sort have to reduce their emissions to zero. And if they don't, and we'll check that, we'll have an accountability system, they can't pay out dividends to their shareholders. Another thing would be a leader saying, we're going to pass financial regulation to completely integrate the risks, both from the impacts and from the potential stranded assets, straight into our economies, because the greatest risk is actually failing to act. And therefore, we're putting in place mandatory measures to do that. Those are the types of systems change that are possible. They're even possible in the next months. They're possible now that could move things forward. The other thing that I think could happen is if a leader said, we're going to hold the companies that caused this problem liable, and they're going to have to pay into a fund, we'll go through a process, and that's going to have to support the loss and the damage of the millions of people around the world. That sounds far-fetched. It's happening on the ground. There are so many law cases and litigation happening now that are being found corporations liable. But we need more of those and we need leaders to be putting those types of things forward. Yeah, we did an episode a couple of months ago about the court cases, including the one I believe Green, was Greenpeace involved in the one in The Hague. Is that an important battleground for you now, is it, the courts? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important battleground for Greenpeace, but I think for people as a whole. And there are more than a thousand cases already underway. And I think what we're seeing is both on the corporate level, but then also on the governmental level, a recent very important decision by the German Constitutional Court on intergenerational equity, where they just found that the government had to increase its target quickly. Because if they didn't, then you have young people today who would be both suffering even more, like the type of events that we're seeing now would be happening more and more intensively and regularly. And in order to respond, they're going to have to reduce emissions even more. It would be so disruptive in their lives. That's what I expect more and more of. If the governments can't handle it and all the different private interests that are coming in, it seems like the courts are able to stick more to the facts. Last question. What, what will we all be looking at, those of us following climate change, after Glasgow, after COP26? What, what's the next step? Well, I think that... Hopefully, this COP can be one that then, you know, sets the ambition and builds that confidence that both the emission reductions and the solidarity pact with developing countries will happen. Then it's really about in, it's implementation, implementation, implementation. It's seeing the laws passed in the United States. It's seeing China and other countries move away from coal. It's seeing the banks you know, being regulated and moving away from carbon intensive and deforestation intensive investments. It's the action on the ground. And I think it also is the action in the streets, the action in the courtrooms, the action in the in the hallways. That I think will just keep keep going up. That's for sure. 
Jennifer Morgan, the head of Greenpeace International. Thanks to her and also to my co-host Gideon Litchfield of Wired. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and please leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Julie Masiga. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week once COP26 is underway with more on the key issues of climate change. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.